I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Smart Sex, confident conversation for women about sexuality. We're at Dunord Craft Distillery in Minneapolis on a chilly winter night for a smart sex salon. Chris and Chanel Montana, our hosts, have mixed up some cocktails, and we're snacking on food truck yummies. This salon is a little different. Usually we fill the room with women, but this time we've invited couples to get real about sex in their relationship. And to be honest, that took some doing. Our therapists Bill Doherty and Carice Rotash-Beard have acknowledged that we're not used to talking about pleasure and intimacy with our partners. So to break the ice, we ask couples to jot a few answers down on our Smart Sex survey. The first question is about sexy underwear. And I think that's just, it's one of these small things that kind of builds anticipation and says, I'm intentionally trying to cultivate that Mm -hmm. sexuality. I can't believe how many people don't wear sexy underwear. What? Why? What? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I have a drawer full of sexy underwear. Don't ask my husband about that, but I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a small little thing, Carice. It's that... a small thing, but it's a huge message. And tell me why. First to yourself. Like, are you worth going to Victoria's Secret and buying that thing that you tell yourself, like, there is no function to this but I look amazing and that's great. You know, do that for yourself first. And then again, like inviting your partner into this, it's saying like, I care enough about my sexuality that I'm gonna spend some money on this. And I also care enough about your sexuality that I wanna share this with you. I mean, you're asking something, what I do on the side is burlesque dancing. So that is something that I like, am really passionate about. Treat yourself, treat your body well, wear things that make you feel good and make you feel sexy. And so that's a huge thing. It's a, it's a small like act you can take, huge message to yourself and to the people you're partnered with. You see what I'm asking though, Bill, about the intentionality exactly. and, and the anticipation. Right. And it, it doesn't have to be any, these are symbols of something, so not everybody has to do that. But if you buy this idea that you will gradually lose eroticism when you habituate with each other and you become your best friends um, and family, um, then it means you got to do something else to spice it up. Right. Mm-hmm. But doing it together as opposed to she goes out and buys it, doesn't say anything to him, has these big expectations that he's going to go, wow, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first time she puts it on, he says, where'd you get that? Or how much did that cost? <laughs> yep. Wow, so many nods. <laughs> oh my gosh, so many nods out there. Jeez, how'd you know that? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> how much that costs. Um, who wants to talk about pornography? Oh, sorry, a question. We'll get to that. No, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a question. Yeah. Um, I've always loved underwear and bras. I wear them all the time. I love sets. I, 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 it's like you put them on, you're sexy all day. You come home and you're like, I just want to have sex. But this last Christmas... He went into my drawer, took pictures of all my Victoria's Secret stuff, went to Victoria's Secret, and bought me all kinds of stuff. Wow. I know. So, nice little hint. (laughs) (laughs) Pro tip. That's more than a hint, but yeah. Nice. Other other questions? All right. This this is a question for Cree. Very un-Minnesotan of me, but how to... Uh, present the question of an open relationship to your partner. Because um, I know I tried it and it 
sort of went disastrously. So, um, and I think that it's not something people talk about at all. I think that there's such a focus on monogamy and one person forever. And so I feel like personally, I felt a lot of shame. Like I couldn't share with anybody that I wanted to have an open relationship. So I'd love to just find out more about like kind of what you, how you help couples through that sure. and have it go better than how it went with me. <laughs> Will you describe what an open relationship Absolutely. is? Um, so ethical non-monogamy is a decision that a, a couple or relationship might enter into where we're sort of, we are explicitly consenting that either sex with other people or relationships with other people is okay. It's part of what we are desiring. It's not necessarily, you know, there's, there's a lot of couples that come to me who started with a non-ethical, non-monogamous situation and are saying like, okay, how do we sort of fix this? How do we patchwork this back together? Um, so there are groups of people and there's a lot of them and you probably know some of them that aren't necessarily out about it that are living ethically non-monogamous lives where they, they might have a hierarchy so they might have one primary partner, the person that they do life with, their cohabitating partner, you know, they parent with, but then they might also have sexual experiences with other people and everybody's on board and everybody consents to it, in a nutshell. <laughs> she mentioned shame, though, of bringing that up with somebody that apparently didn't know, didn't know that you were going to bring that up to. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was, it was really hard for them because they're somebody that monogamy works for them. And that's, that's like the one model that they wanted. And so it's hard because you can love somebody, but to want to have sex with other people doesn't necessarily detract from your love from that person, but to them, it feels like it. So it's, you, yeah, you don't want to hurt the other person, but you have your own needs that you want met as well. So how do you work through that with a couple where maybe one person is yeah. there and the other person isn't? It's very common. And I, I will say, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who identify as polyamorous, but even the people that come in who are opting into monogamy, there, we normalize this idea, and this is again totally borrowed from Esther Perel's work, but we normalize this idea that no one person can be completely everything to another person. And that sounds like nobody's going to make a Hallmark card that says that. But, <laughs> but it's, it, sounds, it sounds hard to say that, and it is hard to say that. And once that is normalized, it's what each couple decides. So the people that are opting into monogamy, they might say, you know, this is something our sexual relationship is going to be just with each other. There might be other fringe things that may be like fantasizing about other things or, you know, maybe the use, I know you wanted to talk about pornography, but that's sometimes what we'll talk about erotic literature, pornography, or other ways to kind of meet those desires. We also have couples that are, have different identities. So somebody might identify as straight and somebody might identify as pansexual or bisexual. So there's that automatic, you know, this one person isn't going to meet every single need that I have. So long story short, so we normalize that from the get-go. And then whether you opt into monogamy or opt into non-monogamy, that's dealing with that idea that no one person can be everything to each other. And I see tons of relief once people understand that. And we can actually pleasure each other more once we know, okay, like I don't, I can't and don't have to meet every single thing on this person's list. Was it a deal breaker? Yeah. You know what it was? Yeah. Okay. And Bill? I'd like to respond to the, the basic question about how do you bring something like that up? Because mm -hmm. it's big, it's a big thing. Um, I, I, I would suggest you don't just, out of the blue, sit down and say, what do you think? Um, uh, I, would do, I would say, I, I, I know somebody who, or a friend of mine is doing this, and that's, 
That's kind of interesting. What, what do you think of that? And then you find out, no way, I think that is terrible. You know, so I would kind of feel somebody out uh, about their general thoughts about this before kind of springing it, because it's such a vulnerable thing. I mean, the, the, the hurt you still, I mean, I, it's on your face now how mm -hmm. painful that moment was. It's emblazoned, I'm sure, in your brain. So I would protect myself from that by having a more general conversation. I mean, th this is actually a, a good technique. This is how I talk to my kids about drugs and all kinds of things when they were teens. To say, I heard at your school that such and such was happening. You know anybody who's, or I hear there's a lot of sort of casual sex going on in college these days. Do you know? Oh, and then they, blah, 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 blah. And then they're into it. We're having the conversation. And I find out their values that way. Rather than saying, well, what do you think of casual sex and hookups in college? This is also a great topic for early dating. If any of you aren't in a relationship well, that's yet a or good in an point. early relationship, right. I love empowering people that you opt in to monogamy or you opt in to non-monogamy. Most of us were taught to default to monogamy, which isn't necessarily good or bad, but then sometimes people who really don't find that that works for them feel a ton of shame about having to disclose that later. And I know it's it's not like, you know, the most fun first date, it's probably not a first date, maybe third or fourth date topic, but to kind of say like, what kind of what kind of things work for you? What kind of relationship model? You can wrap that into sex, like what do you like in bed? You know, how do you see yourself in a long-term relationship? Do you see that for yourself? Or, you know, opting in and giving that power versus feeling like you have to default into something that you But Carice, really I mean, in the early dating days, you figure, I'm always gonna, gonna wanna have sex with this person. There'll be nobody else for me. It's only yeah, I mean, that's, later that... The drive yeah. is there, but also like younger people especially are ethically non-monogamous sort of as a norm, right? So like it's very, you know, there is the conversation now about exclusivity. At some point, you sit down with them and if you're opting into monogamy, you say, okay, so we're done with other people, right? But I, I think most, most people who are dating assume the people that they're meeting for the first, second, third time haven't just like deleted the apps the second that they met them and been like, cool, I'm good. You know? <laughs> really? They're going to keep their options. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was a really good question, yeah, Rachel. Thank, thank you. you. Rachel. Other question, Kelly, I thought you had a question earlier. Go ahead. Well, it just, you talked about the don't bring the yuck face. And if the if you're not satisfying all of those needs that your significant other has, mm -hmm. then how do you not take it personally if they want to look for those things elsewhere? Or how do you, do you just say, okay, no. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. That's a good or question. You do that. Yes. Right. Base, I'm not doing that. It's the basic myth that Curious was talking about that we can ever satisfy all of our partner's needs. We can't. Mm -hmm. And even if you did for a little while, that wouldn't last. And so it's the humility to understand we, right. we, we are all responsible for our own sexual needs and to do our best with our partner, but it's never, but, never full. Well, but, and I think, too, differentiating between you don't have to do what they're asking. Like, again, consent the glue, consent holds it together. So if somebody asks you to do something that you really don't want to do, or it's a trigger for you, or it's, it's not something that you're into, you can say no, and saying no is different than like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? You know, that's the kind of, it's that's the don't yuck the yum. It's saying like, okay, like let me take that in, let me sit with that for a minute, I'm already gonna let you know, like I've got some of my own reservations about that. But, you know, for good for you for identifying that that's what you want, right? So it's, it's not agreeing to necessarily do that, but it is 
holding space for positivity, for kink positivity, for anything that they might desire, that that's, that's what they desire. But Carissa, I, I feel like there's a power dynamic there too, where someone in the relationship wants to maybe go outside the relationship somehow or bring you along on that. And the, the underlying kind of threat there is, and if you don't agree, this is the path I'm on, yeah. and I'm headed that way. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to renegotiate the power of yeah. that. That's when you call a therapist. Yeah, <laughs> right. And what would you say to a couple that was in the middle of that? You know, we would, we would definitely, you know, talk about that. That is a power differential. Nobody likes to feel like there's an ultimatum. You know, nobody likes to feel, I mean, again, consent, like nobody wants to, against their will, agree to something. And so if this were my couple, I'd probably peel those onion layers back a little further and think about, you know, how do we get to this, this place where where did the communication break down, where we're at that point where it feels like there is an ultimatum. And also like normalizing that people do get to that point where it feels like I cannot move forward unless something like this changes. Right. You know, I think having a third person, having a therapist, a neutral party in the room really can break down that power differential. You can kind of point it out when it's happening and really get more information than two people sitting in their living room trying to have this conversation. Because, Bill, I feel like, and, and you've alluded to this, the cultural message about this is what marriage or this is what a relationship looks like and this is all it looks like really presses hard against, well, we're going to redefine what it means to be in a relationship. And maybe it doesn't look like our parents or our neighbors, but this is how it looks like for us. It's the, the, the earlier you do it, the better, because what, what I see is somebody wants to change the basic rules of the relationship after in the middle, 20 years. Yeah. And, and then what, what I see happen is then somebody says, basically, this is where it gets to a, a power struggle, um, that I'm entitled. So there, sex can be, and it's, you know, I'm sure it goes both ways between men and women, but I've seen it more with men saying it because we, we sort of give men the entitlement to sex. Okay? We and do? What they do, sure, culturally. I mean, look at, the, look at this campaign. Look, look, at, the, look at Donald Trump and, and the bus, right? Um, can you imagine if a woman had said that kind of thing? Uh, no. The, re the recovery from that would, would uh, be forced to resign immediately. Um, and so, uh, so it's important that we, we note the power issues and the, and the problem of redefining uh, a relationship in the middle. Uh, and so what I really dislike is when, when somebody uh, uh, announces one day, <laughs> we've had this arrangement, but because I've changed, mm -hmm. you have to change. Uh, and, um, and this is why it's very, very delicate. It, it should be approached with humility, uh, with, with, um, with worry for the other person, uh, with an acknowledgement that something has shifted in me, but not with entitlement. I mean, one of the things I write about in my book about marriage is we have a consumer marriage now, that my spouse's role on this planet is to satisfy my needs. Uh, and, and if that's in there, then it can, it can show up in the, I need something different, so you have to go along with me. That's, you're saying that that is something that is different in the contemporary marriage. We have kind of this sense of entitlement. Yeah, not that we're, we're brand new in history, but it goes back to this idea that we've created this modern uh, marriage where everything is in there. It, sexually intimate, emotionally intimate, best friends, raising the greatest children in the world, being financially successful, great team, 
superhuman expectations um, so that I am a happy, fulfilled person. Uh, and, and it's uh, kind of your job to make And it's make your me job, and this is what can happen. And, uh, and, and life throws a lot of barriers in there. And as soon as you start to struggle with, uh, why won't you have sex with me as often? And, and, I, and I know you're bogged down with the kids more than I, but what's wrong with you mm -hmm. uh, that you won't have sex with me? Under that can be this entitlement, which is sort of like, you know, I bought this car and it's supposed to be working. It's supposed to turn <laughs> on every time I turn the key. Right, right. And uh, every time I want sex, you should be there for me. You know, we've mentioned kids a few times, but we haven't talked about kids, how that changes the dynamic of the relationship. We could do, we will do a whole salon on that at yes. some point, right? But uh, can anybody, can anybody share a little bit about how kids changed what you thought was going on? Um, it, this kind of goes back to the, what you were saying before. So not the kids, but yeah, that's another, definitely another salon, Carrie. Um, so what you were saying, Bill, to me resonates in the form of expectations. And I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, and Grace, this would not come to a surprise. I shouldn't say your name. You're, you're, <laughs> uh, the, the, the expectations that would happen, like when we were younger, you go out and you have a great date night and you have a great time and out, and the next thing you know, it's 1.30 in the morning. The expectation is we're going to have a romping, sexy time until like 3.30. And we sure did. And I'll tell you what, my age, there is nothing better than getting to bed at 10 o'clock and looking at each other and saying, do you mind if I go to sleep? I'm like, no, absolutely, let's go to sleep, please. And, and I bring it back to just that, that freeing yourself of these unrealistic expectations, both partners, mm -hmm. and, and being able to say, you know what, it's bedtime, or you know what, not tonight, or how about tonight, or how about let's take a shower together. And, and, and letting, letting those expectations go, I think, is very liberating and very, very empowering. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it I think it's, gives each partner permission. Carice? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's where I love to talk to people about entering into an erotic space does not mean you have to have your pants off and you're having sex. Like, it can mean, you know, I will instruct people to open up an email account or have some kind of you know, Snapchat or some kind of messaging app that is just dedicated to erotic messages between you and your partner. And so that, like no business, n not, nothing about the kids, nothing about what bills are due gets to go into that space. And so where we might not have the energy, and I get it, like I have a three-year-old, right? The energy changes. You might not have the energy to have these wild rumpus sex marathons like you used to, but I definitely have the energy after a client to like send somebody, you look super hot in those jeans today or something like that, you know, where we can, we can expand our erotic presence with each other without needing to set aside these chunks of time uninterrupted, totally turned on all the time that we could rely on when the relationship was younger. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a smart sex salon for couples at Dunord Craft Distillery in Minneapolis. Our therapists are Bill Doherty and Carice Rotash-Beard, and we discovered that the audience wasn't afraid, once they got warmed up, to talk about passion and intimacy and how it can change over the course of a relationship. For some of the couples here, a before and after, sort of, with kids. Like, this is, this is who we were before, and boy, we, re we really liked that. And now this is kind of after, and it's hard to get back to the glamour and the sexy time of 
Um, <laughs> yeah, Bill. Somebody else besides Bill telling everything that... Uh, well, yeah, right there. I think that I'm hoping with the empty nest, then it's all going to happen again, right? It, really? Is that what's going to... How far away is the empty nest? Mm, five years. Okay. What happens with that, with kind of looking ahead to the emptiness? I mean, there's ways to be cultivating that now, aren't there? Yes, there's, and I love the fact that you're thinking about that. It, it opens up more rooms in the house and more times of the day. <laughs> All right. And so if you're, if you're tired at night, it used to be 10 and now it's 9.30, there's daytime. That's a great answer. You know, I think there's definitely a shift after parenthood, even if, you know, even if it's an adopted, even if your body didn't change necessarily, there's a shift that happens. And I think one of the most fun things about getting to work with people in that phase is I think it can be kind of a hot dynamic if you can get around it, this idea that like, we are parenting this child and we're super nurturing and you know, like we're providing them a really great life. And then when lights go out, like <laughs> we're totally different people. So being able to tap into your different selves, I think especially when you are the person that has birthed the child, when you've nurtured the child more, you know, there's that, the Madonna and the whore complex that you see yourself as this mother figure, oh, but you're also supposed to be really sexy and an erotic partner. And that's really intimidating, but if you can wrap your mind around it, you're like, hey, look at all these things that I can be. But that really seems hard to do. It is very hard to do. And you know what? It starts with acknowledging that you are a sexual being through your entire lifetime, through all of the shifts in your life. So your body might quite literally be only functioning to keep this little being alive, but at some point you have to grab the reins back and say, oh yep, I'm this other person. I think that goes for the non-birthing parent too, that you really pour yourself into this child and at some point you say like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to this hobby that I love that I haven't been able to do and I'm gonna sort of cope with the guilt of being away from my kid because the benefit is I am reminded that I am all these other things in addition to being a parent. But I mean, it does, it does change after the after the kids yes. come, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot, a lot of research on that. <clears throat> and it says essentially yeah. what? Yeah, that, that, that uh, you know, two-thirds of couples have a decline in their happiness in the relationship. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, some, some come back from it, of course. Wow. But um, because we build those early phases of the relationship on time and attention, and there is an attention-sucking machine <laughs> comes into your How life. How dare they? You know, uh, uh, children, uh, nature has programmed them to want all of us. Um, however, the research also shows that the couples that, that uh, avoid this decline in, the in their relationship uh, are the ones who are mindful or intentional, who build in other sorts of things. I love this idea of keeping a place in your mind. I've been having this image of there's lots of musical themes uh, in, a, in a couple, in a family, uh, and they, they get they get, uh, there's a sort of uh, lovely lullaby musical theme when a child comes. But we can also keep some music, musical stream that's sexy and erotic and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a question from the survey uh, about pornography. We put in another, a couple questions because pornography is a big deal okay. today, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Always it's, has been. It's accessible, but yep. the 24-7 accessibility at, for young kids, right, I mean, is, how do you think that's changing 
something that Bill actually brought up, expectations mm -hmm. between couples. Um, I think it's changing at the individual level, expectations in addition to the couple level. I think, you know, I, I work with pornography in my practice. I think if it's employed in a way that's mindful and helpful, I think it can be a really fun erotic tool that people can explore together or individually. I also think like anything, you know, in moderation is where we want to find that sweet spot. And something I heard at one point, I'm not sure who said this, but, you know, young people watching porn thinking that's the way to have sex is sort of like learning how to drive by watching God in 60 seconds. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is a fantasy, right? <laughs> this, is, this is something that is, has been rehearsed and timed and everybody's perfectly manicured and everything is, you know, this perfect cadence of events. And right. so I would never tell my child or anyone else, like, don't watch these fun, exciting stories, you know, because that's taking away the fantasy of it. I will say, here's what it looks like in real time. And here's what it looks like when you're with an actual flesh and blood person, you know, versus a screen or something like that. So it's be being able to differentiate and not necessarily shame pornography use, but being able to differentiate between what that is in the fantasy world versus what it is in real life. Um, so the question here on the survey is, if my partner wanted to watch porn with me before some sexy time, I would give it a try, wonder why I wasn't enough to get him or her hot, ta tattle to his or her mother, Oof. which is, yeah, right away, I think that's <laughs> obvious, tell him or her that porn is a deal breaker and end the relationship. Do a lot of people feel like they don't really want to say it, but they believe that? The porn says something about them and the relationship that's wrong. Bill, is that yeah, true? Yeah, boy, I certainly see this a lot in couples therapy, um, where particularly with, with women believing that, A, there's something wrong with them if, if, they're, if they're, their spouse, their husband, their male partner is looking at pornography, uh, and, and or two, B, that he's a pervert. Uh, and uh, oh my goodness, and then the confrontations that occur on this, and then he sneaks and doesn't bring it up to her, and then it's, it's sort of like he's doing a hard drug, yeah. and, and on and on and on it goes. It's, it's very destructive in relationships now. Do we have any guys brave enough to tell me that <laughs> they're all like, look at it, don't look at me on this? All right, uh, whether you think you can be open about pornography, watching it, to your partners? Well, I mean, we've mentioned like Dan Savage a couple times. Mm -hmm. The last couple of years, the Hump Film Festival has come to Minneapolis and that has been, you know, both times we've gone together and it's, it, it's actually really great because there's such a variety of stuff there that we can talk about like, hey, this, you know, hey, which one, which of these film of these short films really worked for you? Which ones didn't? It was a great conversation starter and sort of was a safe way. You know, you you were saying earlier, Bill, like like a friend of mine is sort of interested in this. Well, this was a way to say, hey, that one particular film wasn't that sort of a compelling idea, and um, or, or this other one was <laughs> terrifying, and we don't want to do anything. <laughs> And, and it, was, it was actually really nice that the sort of, we both had the same sort of compelling and terrifying ones show up on the list. But it was a, you know, it was, I don't know. It was, it was a good experience and it was something I think brought us closer together and was really good. Carissa, why don't 
men want to, a lot of men watch pornography. And if it's sex positive pornography, what's wrong with that? I think nothing. And I also think a lot of women do. Yeah. I mean, there's... Bartender, right on. Yeah. Yeah, girl. (laughs) (laughs) We could get a microphone over there after the bartender. It's it's also tied to masturbation. Let's not forget that. Yeah. And, And that's a taboo subject. Absolutely. And that is why and there's a gender aren't those divide. interesting erotic images there? Yeah. Okay. Right. It, it's it, pornography and masturbation are tied together, and that's a whole other area uh, that is difficult for couples to be able to talk about. And it's good if they can, because most people continue a self-pleasuring part of their lives after they become partners. Mm-hmm. But that's another taboo area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I was going to say too, like there's. There's a way to do pornography use in your relationship or individually in a way that is really empowering. And I think, you know, Smitten Kitten sells amazing ethical, you know, feminist consent driven pornography that I will prescribe to my client. I know some of them by title. I'll say, go check this out, ask Jennifer, ask them what you know, they should get for that. And, and we will talk about using that in a way that makes everyone feel really good. And usually those, those films are also, you know, they are in some level of fantasy, but you can also find things that are normal bodied, normal looking people. But what that, fun is that? No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, I think actually it's kind of, I mean, I think the more you watch them, more you can kind of decipher like, oh, that person's really into it. And some people might really love seeing people that are just unabashedly into something versus someone being like, okay, I got to do this for, this is my job. You know, it's something yeah. that's a little bit different. And it's, it's a really hot topic. And going back to what Bill was saying about, <clears throat> you know, when there is some level of shame, you know, I've had, I've had couples come into me. There's actually an app that you can download. Um, and I'm not going to say the name of it because I don't want people to necessarily get pressed. I really disagree with it, but it's, it's this app where you can, essentially have parental controls on your partner, what they're watching on their phones, what they're watching on TV. And I think this can happen to couples of all genders, but I do see this a lot where, you know, the the power, the control of it is sort of placed in the woman's hands. And then she is monitoring her male partner on what he's doing with his online time. And that is usually the conversation I have that can sort of piss some people off when I say, like, you are, you've turned into his mother. Nobody wants to have sex with their mother. <laughs> like, you have turned into his mother. You know, so there's, oh, God. I mean, it can just get, it can get out of hand so quickly, either in a really massive consumption, mindless consumption of it, or in a tightly controlled, shamed version of consumption. At the bar. Hi, guys. Hi. I was not Hello. expecting this today. What's up? Um, I guess I'll start by saying that I grew up in a very sex-friendly family, a family where you could talk about it. Uh, I didn't realize how lucky I was that I was raised, my mom writes erotic fiction. Oh, And wow. so it was never a problem. You know, I knew where the Playboys were hidden in my house, but I was 13 the first time I realized you can go on the internet and watch people having sex. And I thought that was just the coolest. Um, and my opinion has not swayed from that and I've never held it against any of my partners, but everyone I've ever dated has said that they have either hidden it from their past girlfriends or had shame or breakups associated with it. I've had boyfriends lie to me about it because they didn't even want to talk to me about it. Um, And luckily I'm now in a 
very sex positive marriage and you know I'll, I'll look at his phone in the morning and see that oh well, I see I see what you were watching last night you know and that's fine and same to me and we talk about it and it can be incorporated and I think it's just about making sure that it's about consent and saying what you like and what you enjoy does anybody here think it's a deal breaker if your partner's watching pornography boy there's such wow such uh do you believe this I think yeah. there's people here that don't want to say it well but and I think when it, when it is a deal breaker like we have to look at we also don't want to shame the person that's afraid of their partner watching sex, right? Because that person probably has a huge, giant message of fear about not being good enough, about, you know, what if he or she completely negates me as a sexual partner and only wants to have sex individually with a screen in front of them? You know, so we have to look at those fears and say, like, not necessarily slap them on the wrist and say, stop trying to control your partner, you're being ridiculous, but saying, like, what are you afraid of? Like, what are you afraid of if this person is consuming porn or if well, this what, person... And what is it that, that, that you're usually afraid of? I think everything, every relationship fear boils down to abandonment, boils down to not being good enough, not being, you know, enough to keep their interest. That's our safety. If it becomes your family, like, you don't want to lose your family. You know, so that's, I think that the fear, and I know you said some, like, emotionally focused couples therapy language where one of the models of couples therapy that I know we both really get into is that idea that we are all driven by these attachment needs constantly, whether that means we're talking about porn or whether that means we're talking about, you know, am I parenting our child well enough? It all boils down to those attachment needs. And I would add to that that, that for some people it is a moral issue, a religious issue, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and they deeply, deeply disapprove. Uh, and when you get those two coming together, it's pretty, pretty potent. Mm -hmm. Other questions out there? You had talked at the very beginning about um, knowing what you want. And I've, a lot of people here are, know what they want. They talk to their partner. But what if you don't know what you want? I mean, is that what a sex therapist is for? Is, I, don't, I'm, I don't know. That's a really great question. And yes, I mean, that is something that I have walked alongside people with, helping them discover what they want. It's also really normal. And it's sometimes embarrassing, like we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s, and we think like, oh my God, like I've been alive this long and I still don't know what I want. But again, especially when you're female, you weren't really given permission to go find what you want. You know, so that, I get really excited as a sex therapist when someone comes in and says, I don't know what my desires are, because then we're like, oh man, like we got things to explore. <laughs> like let's, you go to Sminkin, you look around, you come back and tell me what you liked. You know, or we, we just kind of start with that we're sort of a kid at Christmas. Like we can look around and think like, well, all of this is available to me. What am I gonna pick out of it? One of the uh, questions that we had on the survey was, um, I wish smarts, or I, he, she is really sexy when they. What do you think one of the most common answers was to that? Clean the house, do chores, <laughs> do the laundry. What is that about? It's 100% for you. If they're doing laundry or they're doing dishes or taking care of kids, there's no, there's, well, there's, I suppose they get clean clothes out of it. It's not, you know, it's not, that's why. Can you imagine when these relationships started that you would think, and it's really sexy when you, <laughs> you do the laundry, laundry, right? So who, would have, who would have dreamed of that? Yeah. Why is that? 
feeling loved, <laughs> feeling cared for. Yeah. Uh, and this is a this is a turn on, you know, for women in particular. Not that not it's not for men. Uh, and it gets back to this thing about is sex an entitlement? You know, it's like. You know, okay. So, if if you feel like he's lived his life during the day, and then, uh, and then all of a sudden you're together at the end of the day, and now all of a sudden, oh, okay, you, you, we're married. Oh, you, you know, uh, and uh, for a lot of women, um, the, the, uh, the the sexual part of the relationship includes, and for men as well, this do do I feel appreciated? Do, does does he extend himself for me? Um, knowing that the gift of time. Oh my goodness the luxury of time, it brings out feelings of love and affection and that leads often to sexual feelings. I think right. it's also removing, like we've both talked about, there's lots and lots of roles. And so if one partner takes initiative and says like, hey babe, you don't have to do the this part of it today. I took care of that for you. It's sort of bumping up that erotic relationship up a little bit higher. You have better access to it when you don't have to weed through all that other crap that you have to do during the day, it is feeling cared for, absolutely. I would also say too that there's there's the, like do the laundry, do the dishes, that kind of thing, but I also hear a lot of people that are really, really turned on watching their partners through other people's eyes. So if they're doing something that they're really good at, if they're a performer of some sort, or you know if they're giving a speech somewhere and they're, they get to sort of sit back in the audience and think like, all these people are admiring this person and they get to go home with me and that's really hot. I, I really appreciate you two being here tonight with all the great advice and the answering of the questions. Thank you. Smart Sex was created by Teresa McFarland and me, Carrie Miller. Our salon was recorded at Dunord Craft Spirits in Minneapolis. Lisa Ehrman engineered the event for us, and Alex De Palma produces the podcast. Big thanks to our therapist, Bill Doherty from the University of Minnesota and Carice Rotash-Beard. There's lots of stuff to read and do at smartsex.org, including upcoming Smart Sex salons. <laughs>